0: Welcome to The Memphis Machine. A Muddy Pig production. I'm Jonathan Bass. And I'm Carl Casperson. and together we're looking to show off the creative sights and sounds of Memphis, Tennessee. Amen. In this episode, we got to sit down with Gary
1: Hardy. Who you have had the pleasure of playing with, right? I have. And, uh, Many times.
0: You know, Gary has broadened my perspective. You know, I've always liked Johnny Cash. I've always, but all that music has always been, as I would describe, peripheral, kind of, I, I knew the hits. Uh, but getting to play with Gary has really actually I, I, I've become a fan of Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash and
1: that's a great show uh, he's got going down there yeah, he picks great songs and down um, there would be Alfred's on yes the deal.
0: yes uh, but Gary I mean has produced he produced Carl Perkins last record he has been he, he's hung out with Jerry Lewis um, off and on since 1978 or six he mentioned um, he reopened Sun Studios and, and, and named it such, uh, the American Recording. Yeah, back in 86, uh, 87. Yeah, and he, I mean, he had, uh, he's had guests come in. He had um, Ringo, Ringo Starr, Bob Dylan. I mean, Gary has brushed shoulders and ha- and hung out uh, with the best of the best, all because of Memphis. And he 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 is a huge fan of Memphis. He's a huge fan of Memphis music. And he's, he's a historian just because he's lived it and he's been around it firsthand.
1: Indeed. So without further ado, we bring you Gary Hardy, our conversation. It should be said that, too, this is part one. Part one. Yes, we will We will have at least one more, but probably two, I'm assuming.
0: Enjoy. Gary, yeah. welcome to What's Memphis up? Machine. Thank Thank you, you, man. Hey, man. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: know. This is great. Uh, I had nothing to do at all, so I thought I'd wander over here, you know.
0: We, we we are not today. We're not in uh, uh, Nate's bar Ernst and St. Hazel's. Uh, they're closed today. So do you know where are, we are? We we are at, in the lovely home.
2: Do you know do you know how important it is. So uh, what's that? Jerry Lee's done this, home. Huh? Well, the property.
1: Oh, the property.
0: Yes, yeah. yeah. We are long we long are long. in Jonathan's yeah. house, and the property that it sits on was once owned by Jerry Lee Lewis.
1: If you're really quiet at night, sometimes I walk out on my mm-hmm. back porch, mm-hmm. and you can
2: still hear a piano. Yeah.
1: <laughs> he, he was probably he was probably one of the like
0: notorious guys before there was notorious guys right would you say yeah
2: that's kind of how i would describe him sort of kind <laughs> of yeah
0: how about yourself how would you describe yourself
2: i'm just a fun guy you know <laughs> you know I, I i love my life and i love playing music i love my family and uh I just, every day, every day, it's just, you, you never know when you're making history. Okay. I'm living proof that you never know when you're making history, you know. Yeah. So, when you? I, you know, when I, when I opened Sun Studio, I, I, when I did it, you know, you, most of you, you've probably, you, I know you've heard it, but, you know, that wasn't the first thing that happened to me, but I'll, I'll reflect on it just a moment. Uh, I had an amateur recording studio at Graceland. That's right. From 1984 to 1992, and I did over 10,000 recordings of people with voice accompaniment, okay?
0: Okay, now how, how, how did that get, st- I mean, what was that? Was that a friend of a friend okay. thing? Okay, now that- let,
2: me, let me tell you. you know, here's the whole story. Let <laughs> me tell you how complex life can be when you're not working at it, okay? <laughs> I ran across a product that was a little speaker stand for stereos that a buddy out in uh, Piperton, Miles Miller, had made these, and he marketed them in stereo shops. And I looked at it, It's a little tube, uh, U-shaped piece. Uh, you seen my amp stand? That's only? right. Okay, well, stand, yeah. that's not what it started out to be. That was a stereo stand. So I put, uh, I redesigned it, put, uh, little stops on the back of it and I made it a guitar amp stand.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it's for some reason I had a little warehouse out on Lamar and and uh university cheerleaders contacted me to miles used to do their make stuff and doodads for them and, and
0: <laughs> For what, the cheerleaders?
2: Yeah, for the cheerleaders. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm still not sure what he did, but anyway, <laughs> they said, "You know, we need a portable PA system that's battery-powered or, or it either AC-DC-powered and needs a variable-speed cassette. And we, so we can take it out on the field and change the speed of the cheers for them to rehearse. Oh, wow. So I designed and built one. And uh, it, was, it was, had a little more. The, the tape deck was very expensive to get a variable-speed tape deck right. in uh, 1983. You know, 82 yeah. or 83. Yeah. But I managed to design and build it. And they ordered six of them. I sold them for $700 a piece or something. So then I invented this this bandstand amp stand. And actually, I got to see Bruno. This was sold worldwide. This product was sold worldwide eventually. Huh. But that's 18,000 units at $8 a piece to have a $2 profit that does not a company make. <laughs> so I'm out in the damn show in, in California with my little bandstand, amp stands, and I'm down in the basement in the worst booths in the world, and I see this girl singing. I look down, she's a little box with a record player on, on the top, and eight track tape, and... A cassette tape, mm-hmm. and they're playing the record, and she's singing with the record. And I look at it for a minute. I look at the back, and I saw the the DC adapter plug in the back. AC, you know. I said, "Variable speed cassette, AC/DC powered." I said, "How many you got?" The Uniden product. The guy was from New York, a wonderful Jewish man selling wholesale musical instruments. You gotta love them. <laughs> okay. He says, I got about 58 59 I said, I'll, t- I'll take them all. Wow. So I paid uh, $90 a piece for these puppies. No, no 75 I said, but you know, we're gonna, we're gonna age the shipping on them, but I'll take them all. Because I saw, first of all, it What it cost me $300 to build something similar, ACDC-powered. And this had a record player and an 8-track, too. Wow. You know. Yeah. This was the beginning of karaoke.
0: Oh, wow.
2: This was the first units. That's what they had on them. And you could record to the cassette or play back on the cassette, and it was variable speed. And let me tell you the other thing that crossed my mind. When I was... uh, 16 or 17 in Miami I paid for my first recording session $600 to found out no that's what everybody paid back then that's what it cost and to find out to to make it my you know that's the first one I had a partner and somebody paid for But anyway it was a 45 came out of it you know And I said, if I'd had that unit right there, I could have practiced singing and recording myself over and over and over and over. Mm-hmm. I said, this is a good thing. So I, so I researched it and found out there were other products, nothing east of the Mississippi. And so eventually, Panasonic had the best unit, and I became a Panasonic distributor. And uh, I used the technology to open Grayson Recording Studio. Then when they made their $10 recording, I sold every one of those $70 units for
0: $300.
2: Mm. Okay? Yeah. And I hated when I ran out of them. Mm-hmm. You know, but there was better units being made. The technology was going. And I re- researched it knew what the karaoke So Here's the good news and bad news. You can thank me for introducing karaoke east of the Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> but my goals were totally different than what they turned out to be. Uh, to, uh, here's why uh, JBC, Japanese yeah. Victor, they, they became immediately interested in what I was doing. Vice President came over here to look at my place, at Grayson Recording Studio. Because, see, I'd sell them, the condom and tapes so far were very hard to come by, and you had to do a lot of homework to have a good selection. So my goal was I could make the ten bucks, which was ninety percent, ninety cents profit. The ten yeah. cent five minute cassette, yeah, you know, I buy them ten thousand at a time, whatever. But I thought, gee, if I if I had this when I was fifteen years old, I'd be a great singer today. Hmm. And I thought it was the best tool in the world for someone that wanted to be a singer.
0: Instant feedback, right?
2: Yeah. No, yeah. you could just You know, it, and I'm telling long term what I learned about that, but the, that. Being said is that if you really you don't know until you can listen to yourself and hear what you do wrong, Yeah, you can't correct yourself. Yeah. So up to that point, you depended on someone else to tell you. They might tell you anything.
0: Yeah.
2: You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So this way, it's, you had it was self-evident. Yeah. Uh, it's self-evident. You could record yourself over and over and over and over and over. And then let the proof be in the pudding, you know. So I thought I was doing a great service. So a local music voice instructor, I went to see him, and he bought four. That Panasonic made a cassette to cassette in and double speaker. He bought five or six, seven. Mm -hmm. He's been the vocal coach coach to a couple of very big stars since then. Yeah. You know. -hmm. One of them is a boy that lives in Millington. Right. The other one's a little girl that used to be on the Mickey Mouse Club. Right. Right. So I couldn't keep up with the demand. I didn't have enough money. By the way, I didn't have any money in any of these. Uh, I had to make every nickel. So I kind of had to take a partner, you know. But anyway, so JBC is interested, and the vice president comes over and spends three or four days just standing in my shop, and he brings a video of the same thing to test the market.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm thinking, this karaoke thing is no good in the United States. It's not, in Japan, in every, every bar, every corner, yeah. there's a karaoke bar. Everybody in Japan will get up and sing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's not like that here. We tell people you can't sing from day one. You know what I mean? You know, it's the truth. We don't encourage people it, it, or we didn't for years and years. Maybe it's better now. So I thought I was doing a great service to people that want to be singers.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know So, as time goes on, and the bandstand Amstand becomes overshadowed by the highly profitable Graceland recording studio, it didn't. Didn't gross a huge amount of money, but it netted a huge amount of money. (laughs) You know, Yeah. that you can do a couple hundred thousand a year. Teacher you could have pulled most of that out. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah.
2: But um, so that's actually the impetus for all this. That's how it's truthfully how it got started. And the whole time I'm a musician. The whole time. Yeah. I did when uh, the, the bandstand products. I did take off a year or two, and when I, when I taught Graceland, I, I literally went to Graceland and said, I got an idea to put a recording studio in the, the, the old front section, the old strip right there. Wow. I was the last tenant there, the last person that didn't belong to Elvis Presley Enterprises, you know. And I went to see Jack Soden, and he said, sure. So from 1984 to 1992, I, there were two round windows. If you ever saw them, there. were. It was the uh, two round windows in this little strip mall that I think's torn down now. The whole uh-huh. thing. So that was the beginning, and I'm playing. You know, I'm playing all the time. But uh, I did take a little time off when this all kind of took off, and then one day in 1987, Jack Soden called me. It comes by the little studio, studio and J- in, Jack, in Graceland.
0: Jack is part of Graceland. He's the uh,
2: CEO of Elvis Presley Enterprises. Elvis had been Presley. since day one. Yeah, right, know? yeah. And he says, I want you to come over to the office. I want you to meet somebody. I said, okay. And he says, so I go over there, and it's Priscilla mm-hmm. Presley. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, look here, you know, we took the lease on that building where Sun Records used to be, but we can't do anything with it. now." Sam came in here and put, put it back Right, what had been torn out. Hmm. So that's been done, but that's it. And we try, even tried to open it for a season and nobody came. I mean, and we're going to let them tear it down. They're going to make Ronnie Grassani's restaurant, they're going to tear it all down and build onto that because mm-hmm. Ronnie is a very popular Grassani's in Memphis, great Italian family restaurant. Right. He said, if you thought you could do anything with it, you know, and I got to thinking, I said, well, if Elvis Presley Enterprises wants me to partner with them in this, I'll give it a try. And they said, well, we're not going to do that. <laughs> I said, well, if Elvis Presley Enterprises is going to give me the financing to do this, then I'll give it a try. And they said, well, we're not going to do that either. <laughs> I said, well, what are you going to do? And they said, well, if you make it work, we're going to talk really good about you. you mm-hmm. know." But nobody wanted it. Now, I want you to picture this. Nobody wanted it. Sam Phillips had moved a half a block away. Right, twenty-seven years ago, he didn't care anything about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Elvis Presley Enterprises, obviously, the city, nada. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I got to thinking about it. Well, man, I could make records if I could come up with some kind of tour during the day. No motive, no no pure motive here. All right, and uh, and everybody I ask. And I, 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 I'm ashamed to mention some of the names. Not ashamed. I'm, I'm <laughs> regretful that they, the response that I got from people was nobody will ever come there.
0: Isn't that, isn't that something? Yeah.
2: Everyone, not one person, encouraged me. Well, not why, why do you think
0: that is? What, why why, why what, what, what was the? I whole can tell vibe? you
2: very quickly. You know, because we discard our, we, just, our developmental culture. We discard it daily. We don't know when we're making history. I said that earlier. Yeah, We have not not a clue. And in the poor rural South, everything everybody else has is better than what we have. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's our nature. It's part of how we grew up in this area, you know. Mm. That Hot Springs is a very cool place when you're growing up in Memphis in the 50s and 60s. It's like, I thought bottled water, mountain valley water, (laughs) I thought this had to be some kind of water. (laughs) So what's happening
1: in Memphis, uh, in that area specifically, in 1987? Uh, so that's Marshall it's and Eugene, Griss-
2: right? Oh. Oh, it's still cars, you know. There's a little service station uh, across the street that where the Domino's is now that was actually in the movie Thunder Road, the only scene filmed in Memphis. Those little service stations that had the, the two concrete pillars and you drove underneath the little over here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, there's nothing UTs not developed that far it's it's a rundown auto industry area right mm-hmm. there's still madison cadillac still there uh, there's still a couple of dealerships there but the real estate on that street is worthless you know mm. and uh, so they had to put, there was a small county historic marker just put up I think that the presley's managed uh, the Grayson managed to get that done, but there was nothing there was, there was there was nothing near there to give you any reason to come there so and of course i'm telling you if I hadn't have been young and dumb, I would have never tried it i I thought I could make records at night, which well, it's ironic because I did get to make records at night. Mm. The, I started doing some custom projects, and I didn't think I was a good engineer. So I brought in a couple of people that just totally bonded. I said I can do this. So <laughs> the first actual record done there, I did it. I, yeah, that was done there. I did it from mm-hmm. a guy named Thomas Dewey and from Clear Lake, Iowa. Does that sound familiar, Clear Lake, Iowa? Mm-hmm. No. No. Buddy Sorry. Holly.
0: Oh wow! Yeah.
2: <laughs> anyway, yeah, there's little these little connections, you know. But it was a good record, and I thought I can do this. So yeah, that happened, and I and I built the business in terms of tour location of a destination. I bought the, the building. I added my the building next door still belonged to the Swartzes. The whole building did, so. Though it was empty and I got it after two years, and it made its Sun Studio Cafe, which was uh, just like the lady that had the cafe there back in the day. Miss So and so, I can't remember her name. <laughs> But anyway, it was there, everybody hung out. There was no room in the studio, yeah. you know. Yeah. What was her name? This is a moment. Did she no, work for Sun, or was it a separate restaurant? No, no, this, she, it was a, a little, Miss Taylor, Miss wow. Taylor's Restaurant. You can look it up. It's where everybody hung out. Huh. You know? Everybody hung out at Miss Taylor's. And uh, wow. I had the pleasure, to have, she, I don't know if she's still with us, but she was 10 years ago, the last time I talked to her. Wow. These ladies involved in this story tell the truth. The other guys, not so much. Hmm. And I talked to all of them. So, anyway, then uh, to the the thing that when I first got it, I sat up there for about a month and nobody came to the door. I spent my last $600 on the six largest photographic prints that are still in there today. In 1987, you could not get a big picture at Office Max. You had to go to a photo lab, Mm. three foot by four foot picture. I wanted big ones. Yeah. And it was hard to find pictures. But Graceland did open up their archives to me, and I researched through the press similar, the old newspaper here, their archives, and found some good pictures. And uh, so I spent my last $600 on those. There's three on each wall, they're still there. Yeah. And I uh, sat up there for a month, and nobody came to the door, and the phone didn't ring.
1: Yeah.
2: Because who what did it? Remember me sharing with you earlier my phone? My my first um, aha moment in music. What was it? Do you remember? No, I remember us talking about driving in the car. What did I hear? Oh, uh, well, Hendrix was the second one. No, 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 uh, I want to hold your hand. It was that English band. That English band. That somebody (laughs) minor. I want to hold your hand. Yeah. So I'm sitting up there in this room. This isn't my music. This was my sister's music. Ironically, I'd been to virtually every early Elvis appearance there was when I was four years old with my older sister huh. and my grandmother taking her and her friends around.
0: Hmm.
2: My, my grandfather and my father, we both had businesses on Lamar. And uh, Elvis' progression from the, the public housing to when he moved out on, uh, on Auburn, Auburn off a of park, he had three houses on Lamar and Git between Lamar and Getwell as he as things grew. And uh, so his first appearance was at the Cat's Drugstore at Lavar and Airways, Grand Opening. He played on a flatbed truck, and he played the same two songs over and over and over.
0: A drugstore opening. Yeah. It was yeah.
2: actually, a, it's like a big, it's like a Walgreens. Yeah, right, You know. Yeah. But, and I was there. But, you know what I remember? At the bottom of the escalator was the best candy counter I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So this is just happenstance. But So you have to understand that somebody was born in 1950, they grew up in Memphis. This is part of our life. Mm-hmm. It's just part of our lives. There's probably a 1,000 a people that have similar stories as mine. Mine just happened to keep going on and on and <laughs> on and on. <laughs> so anyway... Um, I got a call when I was ready to give up. I was ready to give up after a month. I was broke. I didn't have nothing. Got a call from a buddy of mine. Says, hey, Gary, got your building where Sun Record used to be. I said, I'm sitting here right now, mm-hmm. but I won't be sitting here long. He says, why? I said, I've made a mistake. Mm. He says, well, I got somebody who wants to come down there. I said, well, he's going to have to come get some baked manicotti over here <laughs> when Ronnie Grassani <laughs> builds his restaurant here. He said, no, you got to let him come down. I said, who is it? So he says, it's Ringo Starr. Oh, wow. I said, bring him on down.
0: Did yeah. you believe him, or were you just, do you think it was Josh in you, I mean, or, or
2: Because of who it was, I believed yeah, him. Yeah. Uh, it's a fellow I respected a great deal, and his father was a very famous painter. And so I knew this did not huh. anybody. So my first experience was a Beatle. Now, Chip Moon was back in town. So to sidebar story there, I'm the last artist that recorded at American when Chips Moman was here and left in nineteen seventy-two. I'm the last album recorded at American Records. Huh. So Chips is back in town and they gave him all this money to come back and he put a studio in the firehouse that's just south of Alfred's today, the Otto oh, yeah. Firehouse. Yeah. And the Howie Men recorded there and so forth. So Chips records Ringo there. And I'm just a helper bee, and, and uh, so I got a Beatle. Man changed my life. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sitting there with Ringo Starr and his beautiful wife, Barbara Bach, who's hard to look at anything but her big eyes. Okay. Personality. Yeah, personality. <laughs> and Ringo turns to me and says, Gary, it's Gary. And I said, yeah. He said, did you know if it wasn't for Carl Perkins, there'd be no Beatles? And he changed my life a second time. Because I realized I was sitting there, and this, none of this had rung into me before. Right. Because no one else thought it was important, so why should I? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sitting there with the man that changed my life, and I'm in the room that's mine, and the room made him happen.
1: hmm
2: How many, and he made me happen. How many millions of guys is that true of? Yeah. Millions. And I thought, I need to do this. I need to figure out a way. Yeah, just keep going. Know. Yeah,
0: now, is, is I've heard is that recording shelved or is that available? Is shelled. that right?
2: It's shelved, right? Did Did you mention there was a little issue of alcohol?
0: In oh, out there well, you know.
2: And uh, <laughs> right now, we're going to take a break to get a <laughs> word from our sponsors. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, uh, first of all, I'm a proud son of uh, Knox and Bernice Hardy who both graduated from Whitehaven High School in 1942. Uh, all of us from Shelby County, and uh, my my dad flew 40 missions as a B-17 pilot in World War II. I'm the youngest of four. How, how many missions? 40 missions as a th- B-17. Th- th- that's, that's 15 that, that, okay. more than yours. That's a
0: rare. That's a rare number, <clears to throat> <certain> isn't <throat> it? <clears throat>
2: look it's like all wars that old men make them and boys go fight them and uh, they kept telling them, well you can get off, get out early if you fly five more missions you know mm. I'm, I'm just saying that's just it's, I mean, when way- you have to think when you think about the the, the the mental environment that you're dealing with boys are sent off to fight wars and old men tell them what to do yeah. you know so anyway when before I turned one years old my father bought about five acres that was on the corner of a section of cotton. And it's where the farm manager lived, which was a little small plantation house, story and a half with columns around it. And where are we talking about right now? Huh? Where where are we at right now? We're in Shelby County, uh, in southeast Shelby County. Um, That area was called Oakville back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's uh, the... The house was built in about 1880. So mm. it was not antebellum, but it was right after. But it was a section of cotton. And it was the most wonderful place a boy could grow up, you can imagine. Because I could. That, I had the cotton over here. I had a cattle farm. And then straight behind me, about 300 yards, was woods and a creek. Yeah. So, I was, yeah. you know, it was just great. And uh, also... The three little houses behind my house were clapboard, worn wood houses. They were sharecropper's houses. My neighbors were poor blacks who picked
0: cotton.
2: Mm. I had a couple of other neighbors down the road, uh, but maybe five people lived in a two-mile stretch, five houses. And uh, it's uh, it's well populated now, but... uh, the point being is that this is the most unique situation that my neighbors, my neighbors were who I learned about friendship from. And my other neighbor was a very poor man who drove a school bus, and his son and I were friends, and he wore overalls every day. you know. These are some poor people. Mm. And these folks behind me, the Franklins. I'd play with little Tommy Franklin, was my almost my age, and big Mister Franklin would come over and wring our chickens' necks in his You Ever seen a chicken get a neck run? hmm Actually, yeah. Actually, yeah. I, haven't. I haven't. No, no they, I've seen. Yeah, guy... you heard chicken like, a around chicken with his head cut off. They literally did go and do this, you know. <laughs> so anyway, first uh, my mother stayed home. The last year, before I started school at four and a half, my mother stayed home with me that year. My first musical memory is my mother standing over the washing dishes, singing the alto part on the Jericho Road, a great gospel song. I thought my mother was an angel. Mm. And from that point on, I was fascinated by my mother's voice. She sang in the choir. She sang in the quartet. And I loved my sister's records, but you didn't like the obvious ones that you'd think. I'm a Drifters fan, and the earliest Drifters record, uh, Frogman Henry, I can sing like a bird. I can sing like a frog. Or these late fifties, early fifties. How much is a dog in the window? You know, I was probably four years old and yeah. I I loved pop music. That's mm-hmm. what it came down. I loved pop music.
0: Did, did it occur to you that your mom was singing a part that was not the melody? To maybe a no. song
2: that you... No, it didn't. No. It, but, it but, didn't, but, it cause didn't. Cause the only when I heard her sing with everybody else, but it is, she actually was singing a part that was a melody, and that's the only line that she sang that was a melody. In other words, it's everyone just stop, and she's saying, On the Jericho Road. And then everybody coming, There's room for just two. <laughs> that was her solo, yeah, that right. line. Okay. You know? So, music... I'm not overly involved in music till I'm nine years old and I take piano lessons. Hey, real
0: quick, Memphis Machine would like to thank Snakebite for their sponsorship of the podcast. Snakebite, made in America, makes the best keychain beer bottle opener and folding fork church key along with their excellent professional bartending tool, the Mamba. You can check out Snakebite at www.snakebiteco.com.
2: And I learned to play piano the Burl O. Swanger way. And actually, Burl O. Swanger taught me on three of my lessons. The lady taught me the rest. But Burl O. Swanger, do you know anything about Burl? No. Burl O. Swanger was W.C. Handy's piano player in the last years that W.C. Handy was living. Hmm. He, this, is a, this is someone you should know about. Burl O. Swanger is a man you should know about. And you know, my first recital piece was what's the first published blues song? Does anybody know it? Oh, uh, uh, Memphis, Saint, uh Saint Louis St. Louis, Louis Blues. St. Right. Louis Blues, gets that right. right. That was my so WC Handy's piano player mm. taught me how to play St. Louis Blues. Wow, y'all don't That's get a this, trip. you don't get this, do That's wild. Now, this is how things progressed for me mm-hmm. historically interwoven. For the rest of my life, you know. And, uh, but I hated piano. <laughs> I hated it. I hated it. I, I hated reading music. I just, even though his was a, was a guitar method of teaching, it was mm-hmm. boom, check, boom, check, boom, check, you know. Stride
0: piano. Yeah.
2: yeah. You know, bass note chord, bass note chord, yeah, bass right? note chord, you know. So, but then when I'm 13, my mother gets an organ for Christmas. And You cannot keep me away from it. Hmm. I went because I started playing songs that I heard him and beat three organ on on the radio. Oh, wow! You know, hmm. and I thought, now this is for me because you could just hold this puppy down and <laughs> yeah, sing it. Right? <laughs> so, and then, uh, and that was about the time that I heard the, the Beatles, and right, you know, and and I got it, really got a band. Uh, and I thought it was just wonderful that you could. See. Well, here's how it was back in the day, in the in the early mid '60s when you got to be in posts. There was there's a lot of interest in music because you got to remember Roy Orbison, Pretty Woman preceded the Beatles in America. Okay. So that was a record that like this is different.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know what I mean? And of course we'd had all Elvis. We'd had the entire rockabilly rock and roll revolution. You know, that had all happened. But that waned in 1958. Why did, it, why did it wane in 1958? Anybody know why? Elvis joined the Army. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. All right? This, this is just a fact. Yeah. You know what I mean? But the influence had already spread. And I, this is where we're going to get real obvious now and a little redundant. But you remember what Ringo told me?
0: Carl Perkins.
2: Yeah. Paul McCartney told me. George Harrison told me. They're over there listening to these American records from 1955, 54, 55, 56, 57. You ought to hear the the Beatles on the BBC. Right. They play all the stuff that they learn.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And we get it back, and we don't even recognize it. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is all about when we presented our music. A culture only presents its music once in its history. Once. Then there's some renaissance, but once. And it was pretty much the same up until we presented ours. We presented ours in the age of communication. The whole world heard it. Mm -hmm. Everything changed. You'd have to be the most re- remote jungle village in the world not to be influenced by American music, mm-hmm. you know. First English-speaking country to heard it brought it back to us in every way, shape, or form. Every, virtually every British act that you get that came to us in the 60s were, was American music, you know. Right. So this thing is just snowballing now. So where does it go? Well, it goes wherever your heart takes you. Fortunately, because it was so young, we still got some original stuff coming, you know. We've, my personal belief is that the last Van Halen record was the last of the pre- pre- presentation, the first Van Halen record yeah, was the, the, the last of presenting American rock, and it's in morphed over that since 1955. That's just my opinion, you know. Yeah. But uh, see how it affects these, these folks, all these folks were poor people all great music is is made by poor people all right cuz music is a that's their music is for them and for their feelings and for their struggle and for their relief and for their for their happiness or for their grief or for their sorrow or whatever because it takes them away from the environment that they live in yeah and they become they're in a musical environment. All America's music is by great or by poor people, poor white people and poor black people. Why did it happen? When it happened, all of this I'm talking about, World War II is why it happened.
0: Mm.
2: World War II was the great interruption in the growth of our culture. Whatever ever been going on musically, Okay, not important anymore. Whatever been developed in New York and New Orleans or in the fields of cotton fields of the south in the mountains. Yeah. None of that's important anymore. It is what it is. We'd, we'd tasted it. There'd been people that'd gone out to do remote recordings. There'd been little of this, there'd been recording of black music, they'd been recording of jazz, they'd been recording the country. But none of it came together.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: In 1947, we've got hundreds of thousands of black veterans coming home. Hundreds of thousands. What do they got in their hands? The GI Bill. They have financial help. They get educational opportunities. They have job training. What do they have? Money. They have a financial base they've never had. And also... How do you think they were treated in France like kings? Mm-hmm. The civil rights movement. A lot has to do with the soldiers that came back. Because they were treated like men. Mm-hmm. Not just like men. They were they were, they were loved. Very hard to come back and sit in that shack behind my house, sitting it. And the boards cracked, newspapers stuffed in the boards in those houses. Mm-hmm. And no indoor plumbing, you know. Uh, so then we get to black radio stations. And we get to hear this music that they've been making. And, and it's about sex and girls and drinking and all the good stuff that's still good stuff. It's okay. <laughs> but, uh, and every farm boy that liked music, that heard it, went nuts. Never dreamed they could play it. Elvis' his own words. He wanted to sing like Dean Martin. He wanted to look like Tony Curtis. But they loved his music. They all did. They loved it. And only by accident did we get to hit, see it cross over. Mm-hmm. And um, Dewey Phillips. Dewey Phillips. radio the, guy. The, the, the radio. No, it's not just a radio guy. This guy was <laughs> absolutely crazy. And he... He got his start. He got out of the Army. He lived over in uh, about 100 miles east of here, and he came to Memphis. He wanted to be a singer. Well, that never even remotely happened. But he got a job at the Cress's department store in the record department here. And he hooked up to the PA system and played all these records, anything he wanted out on the street in downtown Memphis. Then he hooked the microphone into it, mm-hmm. and if you never heard a recording of Dewey Phillips, you need to get get one because it's like this: get you a Wilbur load of mad dogs runs to the front door and tell them Phillips Phillip sent you from Red Hot and Blue. So anyway, so he's doing a great. He's He's got the number one record sales uh, in the record shop sales in five hundred Cressis department stores. Okay, <laughs> within two years. So this is fifty one and fifty two. Well, the black radio station in town, WDA, is getting rich. All right, they're getting rich. So the white radio stations, WHBQ, is saying, well, they can't commit to hiring black personalities. Mm. You get it, you, y'all will never understand segregation, right. but I lived in it. You, you just don't have a clue. Right. Mm-hmm. So he does this great job, and God, the guy at WHBQ is saying, well, we can't hire a black guy. Well, why don't we try this Dewey Phillips guy who seems everybody likes him. hmm Stroke a genius. Black, white audience. His audience was everybody. hmm <coughs> And he became, from 1952 to 1958, the most popular air personality in Memphis. And it was his chef, Sam Phillips, his was at, on the, on, you know, the magazine floor of the Chitska Plaza Hotel, you mm-hmm. know. And, uh. Sam was just down the street, you know, and Sam would take the demos down there. They were, they they were, they were compatriots from day one. They weren't kin, but they they advised each other musically, because Dewey had he crossed over, he was welcome on Bill Street. Dewey was welcome everywhere. He was just a universal man. He had a pretty bad morphine habit too. <laughs> Well, he'd had a wreck, two wrecks in Arkansas, one in 51 and one in 53, but someone was killed in a wreck. By the way, this is very hard to find out much about that. Wow. I'd always thought he'd been wounded in the war. I was wrong. But uh, anyway, I mean, basically every rock artist, every artist that came to Sun was introduced on WHBQ Radio by Dewey Phillips. And... uh, and I'll tell you how blessed I am, not only did I produce Carl Perkins' record, who changed my life inadvertently, I got to produce Rufus Thomas' oh. last record. He had the first hit on Sun and Styx. So there's a lot more to this than meets the eye. I mean, this is just yeah. some of it, you know. But I can't tell about me without telling about these guys. Yeah. I mean, and Dewey Phillips, the reason I remember him, because I thought he was in the... When he was at WHHM in Millington in 1965, at the, he was banned in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Oh, he had a television show in 57, 58. And uh, he got... They canceled it because he had a blow-up doll on there and he groped her on the air. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. You <laughs> know, uh, he had a terrible morphine in the drink. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, uh, no, it's legendary what they did on right. that show. And yet... He virtually got banned. So he finally, his last job was at WHHM in Millington, and he played all that great stuff then in 65, man, when I was 14, all, every night. Yeah. I'm head underneath the pillow, here's the radio, here's me, you know, and I was listening to, to Dewey Phillips. And uh, when you get into the music scene in Memphis in this era, era, or era, <laughs> era, you know, you go past that. You have to find out more about it. You, you'll find out that the story of Stax, son, uh, high, an American, mm-hmm. are all fingers of the same same story. Right, it's people, everything. Right. right. You find out that this isn't this story and this story and this story and this story. This is just one the big whole scene, story, right? and the cast are all related. I mean, yeah. it's a, you know, you'll find this out. And it's very hard for me to take it through to today because I have to go through so much to get you to today because a lot of this seems unimportant on this musical streets of Memphis today. It really does. I'm talking about among musicians, and it doesn't seem very important. It wouldn't have anything if it weren't for this story.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It wouldn't have anything. We'd be having somebody else's story. This is our story, you know. And it's one thing, you gotta have an ego to be good at to 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 present music well. You gotta see what is you got to whiz, you acknowledge the folks that give it to you. <laughs> you know. Well and speaking uh, of that,
1: you, you you've had a show on Bill for, for a while now. How how long has that been, running?
2: I started this first of all, my first time I ever played Beale Street, I was still his son. And I did the format I did, did right now. Mm-hmm. I did it Run boogie for the summer in 1990, packed house 4 to 7 on Sunday afternoon. Let's,
0: let's back up real quick because Beale had been shuttered up right before there was a reopening of Beale, right?
2: Oh, yeah. This is, you have to get back to this is uh, the earliest days of Beale happened right after Sun when I opened Sun. That was right. just getting started. There were only, like, two places open on Bill. Swabs was still open.
0: Why was it shuttered? Just, just the economy well, or just...
2: Okay, fellas, you know, you really got to stay focused on this stuff, and you've got to learn more than I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. It's race. Yeah. It's race. This is a community of that we're racist by history. Mm-hmm. Segregation dominant. Yeah. Uh... And we build our own. We build our. We rebuild our segregation. Here's what happens: Stacks, where Stacks is. Yeah. You know anything about that neighborhood? That was a lower middle class white neighborhood. And after World War II, yeah, Bill, black homeowners. Then the whites improved their station in life. They'd move away, and the, lower, the houses, the 1,000-square-foot the houses that were there would be bought by blacks who were improving their lives. So this, these levels of white flight, Didn't you, you want to check them out? This is going on. I think we're sitting in one of them. No offense, but no. I'm saying this is how all these, uh, not this town, but uh, all the ones that are uh, west of here, all of white flight uh, that are in North Mississippi. Mm-hmm. I don't mind telling anybody this because it's just fact. No, it's real thing. Uh, these are just I mean, facts. C- St. C- Louis went through
0: the same thing, yeah. too. You know, yeah.
2: these are just facts. Is that? Mm-hmm. And I never heard the N-word in house. I grew up in a section of cotton with virtual indentures in, with my neighbors that were dirt poor, lived in houses with cracks in the walls. Mm-hmm. I never heard the N-word in my house. Mm-hmm. I think that was my—and the other thing that changed me is I moved away from here my senior year of high school. They closed the base where my dad was a pilot in the Air Force Reserve, full-time reserve, And I had to go with them to Miami, and I was like going to college. I went from graduating—I would have graduated 280 here to graduate 1,250 in Miami High. Mm. Every race, nationality in the world— God and my parents in my life have prepared me for my life mm-hmm. and helped me to have a little bit broader vision and better understanding and I still don't know much. <laughs> you know. But I I used to think about I remember I was at the High in a famous club in Midtown, Memphis. This is when I'm about twenty two and having a pretty good run with a band called Jen it's when I was recording at American. Mm. That. If you don't know anything about American, you need to learn all you can. More hits were cut there than anywhere. Mm. And uh, I'm sitting at a table, and I'm 22 years old, right? And John Mayall's sitting there with me. Mm. Bluesbreakers, you yeah, heard sure. that? And he's talking. and I said, "Well, you know," he's, he's talking, and he's, he says, "Yeah, I'll be 47 this year." And I'm going, oh. "I'm 22, thinking if I don't make it by the time I'm 25." I'm sunk. Mm-hmm. This is how you thought in that era,
0: mm-hmm.
2: that post-Beatles era. If you didn't make it by a certain age, you weren't going to make it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, and the greatest thing that ever happened to me was to, not, not literally that it's happened to me, but finding satisfaction in what I do no matter what level I'm at and uh, finding that it's it's valid and has value and that especially i've lost so many friends that did better than me in the music business mm. what, what do you want you know yeah, right. so, you know you get the question when i was a son i used to get interviewed by everybody in the world in talking about national news people and stuff and everything yeah. well what do you think about what it would what would it have been like if you were Elvis I said I'd be dead <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's a great answer.
2: you know oh, yeah. I said you know why would I trade places with any of these guys you know most of them you know and it's still true I would not want to pay that to, to have less life on this earth to have a I think about my dear friend Jimmy Jamison and his mm. great career he had, and he's Singer gone. Promo, oh, survivor, survivor, right? survivor. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh,
0: so you've had th- the, you've had a long standing relationship with, with with Beale Street, it, it, and Beale was. Uh, correct me, please, if I'm out, but it was, it was mostly black owned businesses. Ah, is that correct?
2: This was this was
0: when Dewey Phillips was, was hitting it, right?
2: Yeah, now from from the from twenties through the through
0: 1965
2: and then, and then Martin, Luther,
0: Martin Luther King was,
2: was the, killed the, the civil rights movement and the, the white flight and segregation, desegregation and all that. Any, there, any place that was a poor area that was dominated, it changed to something mm. But you know you know what my first memory of Bill Street is I'm going to see the Battle of the Bands at the Malco, which is the Orpheum. okay. Right after the Beatles came out, and Larry Raspberry is there and the Gentry's and, and a couple other local bands. And uh, my brother had a K guitar. I was 13, so it's yeah, about right. And he got it for Christmas. And, and I heard that Nathan Novick, well, if you know where Blue City Bandbox Box is, okay, that was Nathan Novick's pawn shop. Mm. And I heard that if you got there first, he had to sell you something no matter what. So like my my mom would take me to the, the bus line, and I'd take the bus downtown. Saturday, Saturday in Memphis at, at downtown, I was like heaven, man. It was just great. And but I heard if you got there first, he had to tell you something. So I needed <laughs> new guitar strings and for my brother's guitar. So I get there, and he's coming door. He's like door. He "Oh." I said, well, I'm the first. He's he said, No, no yeah, just left. The guy just left. He, well that happened like four times. I mean, there was never a guy there. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't he was you know. But uh, that it was at the, the pawn shop was right where the band box is and that's where I ended up years later for eight years. Blue City Cafe. I played there for eight years. Yeah, right. This uh, this is uh, this what I did this in my first uh, ten year on Bill Street. First of all I did this show when I still had Sun. I did it at Rum Boogie. When I came back, when I lost Sun, I started playing at Alfred's, And uh, but what I became, for even though I did, I, ended, I started the this night with the Sun stuff, mm-hmm. I ended up with the Zeppelin medley that everybody went crazy over, so that's what I was known for at the time. Well, as I'm going to have to wrap it up, but I'll come back again sometime <laughs> if you like. Yeah. <laughs> I know, Gary, this is a long story, oh, you know, you fabulous. might be doing me a big favor here, because I need this.
0: I think this is this is rich, this is fabulous, so we are definitely, this is part one, we're definitely going to have to schedule part two, yeah. uh, but Gary, thank you so much, man. Well, this look, is, I just want to invite fabulous.
2: all your listeners, if you'd really like to know more about the town you live in and the music you listen to every day, no matter who's playing it and where they're from. Come down and see us. Come down and see me and Casper, the friendly bass player. Because right. we don't, this is not, this is not a garden party. We don't play it like, I'm not wanting to pretend to be to anybody. It's
0: not a tribute show. As I've much, seen, it, in, like, and and I even hate no. the
2: word because right. I'm going to do something, you know. I'm not going to do it like them. I don't care what you think. It's nothing like them. It's my respect for them that I keep this format. The format, I do this as a, this is my traditional, my, me honoring those people that played upright acoustic and electric mm-hmm. to present our music, right. to see how much we can do with it, you know yeah. what I mean? To see how, how far we can take it, and we take it pretty far. Yeah. If you see the show, you'll say, well, this isn't just a bunch of guys trying to play old guys' music, you know? It's a bunch of old guys trying to play music they won't
0: <laughs> But you know, I mean, so I've been doing the show since uh, when did I come on? Six June, did June, or was it March? No, April. I think it was
2: April. Actually, year. it was. You didn't actually start a little later, than that to be regular. You know, June ish. Yeah. But,
0: but so, so, and, and that music had always been kind of peripheral. I've seen it in films, maybe once in a while on the radio. You know, Johnny Cash. I knew who yeah. he was. But, but I tell you what, you know, and, and like you said, it's, it's not a strict, you know, we're not in costume. We're not trying to do a, 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 a tribute, you know, uh, impersonator type show at all. But uh, um, it, I think it bears witness of the fact that the songs are strong enough to where you can do your own thing. And Jones. people jump right in and enjoy. The, the songs are strong. How many
2: songs today will last forever?
0: I mean, they're, they're strong songs, and, and yeah, and like you said, I mean, how many? They're, they're storytelling songs. It's educational they're, show. They're, they're just not. They're just not bump and grind and do me baby songs. Although there's a time and place for that too. But yeah, these, well, uh, you know, there's. Uh, <laughs> there's you know, but
2: but these so, these songs are engaging. Grind, do me baby. I think I will do a couple of those out. You know, yeah. Yeah. but the songs are engaging. I mean, they are really. Well, fun. the point is, is that there's you keep looking for something new. Everybody out there in the world, you're listening to the radio, thinking you get something new. Guess what? You ain't. (laughs) (laughs) See ya. Hey, grab some uh, rice and beans.
1: Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Gary Hardy.
0: Jonathan, you were a fabulous host. Mm. Red beans and rice (laughs) were delicious. I mean, really, they were. It was really good.
1: I'm kind of known for my red beans and
0: rice. Well, regardless, (laughs) fueled by red beans and rice, Gary spun some tales, and it's all true
1: yes it is all true it and is there all will true. be more because we have been informed by Gary that there will be a part two and possibly a part three he, of this conversation
0: I, I, I can't see why it wouldn't go on for, for a while he's, he's he's been there he knows it
1: so stay tuned for season three in which you're sure to find some more Gary Hardy more Gary Hardy
0: thanks for listening